Hello everyone and welcome to this week's show. I'm sorry that we can't come to you with video as well. We have a few technical issues but the wonderful Manuel is working on that so I'm sure things will be fixed for next week. But thank you for tuning in to Today Radio if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify please subscribe. It will really, really help uh, the visibility of this show through Luxembourg and internationally as well. I know there's lots of you listening uh, across the borders in different lands and different continents. So thank you so much for tuning in to the news from Luxembourg to the world. Um, I hope you enjoyed the elections last weekend. We had a fabulous marathon run here. It was live for four hours. I certainly uh, did my fair share of talking. We had a music stack lined up, but we didn't need to play one tune because it was just guest after guest after guest and it was a really exciting night for us and of course we will bring you the news of the the coalition the new coalition as it forms uh, my colleague Sasha who's normally here with a, a roundup of the week's news is enjoying a weekend in Lisbon with her husband so we wish Sasha a wonderful weekend away and now I have a very packed studio I've got six guests here with me this week and uh, I was just saying to them before I press the live button that the uh, the thing that worries me most about any show is the pronunciation of names, because, of course, we represent a very international uh, portfolio of people here in the room. And I apologise in advance, as always, when I screw up your names. So uh, some of them are easier than others. So we've got Professor Marcus Muller. Your name is not so hard. <laughs> we've got Valeria Magna. And then we also have Thibault Latour, Georgie Sakmar and Michalis Spiropoulos. And finally, Hannah Shmashko. So there are all of my guests in the studio. I've got some smiles going around, a couple of thumbs up, so I haven't done too badly. So we've got uh, two people here from Lunex University, three people from the Luxembourg Media and Digital Design Centre, and Hannah, of course, from the SciLux podcast. I'm going to start, though, with Professor Marcus Muller and Valeria Malia, who come from Lunex University. Marcus, starting with you, first of all, uh, a lot of people won't have heard of Lunex. What is it? That's certainly true. Uh, that's something we experience on a regular basis here in, here in Luxembourg. And, uh, but we are in the, in the middle of changing that. Oh, um, and, the name? Uh, running for it. No, not changing the name, but uh, changing it for the better so that people have a better understanding of who Lunex is and what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, Lunex has actually been around for quite some time now, for almost seven years. Um, and most people are really, really surprised when they hear that we have uh, close to a thousand students by now uh, out in, in Diffadange. And certainly haven't done, have, have done a great job in recruiting students and educating students. Um, but haven't done a great job in going out and talking about it. Well, we should say there is a specialism there. It is sport, health and management. So that's a re- And actually, I have visited Lunex and the facilities are really fun because you have a piscine, a swimming pool, which is like an auditorium. You've got a running track, which is basically the corridor around the place. So it's really a really kind of fun, dynamic uh, campus. Yeah, it is a fun place to be. Um, and at the same time, we're trying to you know, educate future leaders for the sports and health field. Um, speaking of Luxembourg, we always talk about Luxembourg being one of the richest countries in the world, uh, but health is also a big part of wealth. Um, and uh, it's certainly not the case for health, that we are one of the healthiest nations in the world. 
which is ironic given the level of lifestyle here. But I know this is something very, very dear to your heart. You spent 20 years in the business world and you moved from the corporate world into academia, in fact. And so in your experience as a professional and through your research, what do you feel people should do to obtain maximal, maximum personal work performance alongside retaining their own well-being? Wow, that's a big question. Yes, um, but I know let, you've let done a lot not, of research. Let me not it. talk about maximum. Uh, I would go for gradual improvements. I would be happy if uh, people in Luxembourg would just step by step, day by day, bit by bit, improve their health and well-being. And not just Luxembourg, anybody. And not just Luxembourg anywhere. Um, but in general, I think there's one um, key point here when you talk about performance and organizations that a lot of people still think, especially formal leaders and managers think that there is an adversarial relationship between performance and well-being. A lot of people think in organizations, when you talk about feelings of how people feel in organizations, I often have the comment from a leader saying, yeah, but we don't want our people to feel that they're a club mate. But <laughs> feeling, you know, having good well-being at work doesn't mean you need an armchair and a brawly or something. It's something, you know, there's a 100% correlation. That's one of the most robust findings in the social sciences, that the better people feel, the better they perform. Mm-hmm. That's basically one of the missions also for, or part of the mission of Lunex. Well, that sort of seems obvious, but, but clearly it hasn't transferred into the work world. And so then, how do you feel through your research and through your own you know, experience working in companies, how should companies adapt to look after their staff more? I think, first of all, there needs to be a a paradigm shift in thinking. Um, And uh, what I see currently in the market, especially here in in Luxembourg, is we talk a lot about sustainability and greenwashing. Um, What I see here is what I call people washing. Um, So people, companies are not really committed uh, to making a change but just signaling, are we doing something, not really caring about making a change or a difference to employees' lives. And I think that needs to change. There needs to be a paradigm shift in thinking at the upper echelon levels, because otherwise it's not going to happen at the lower levels. I have had friends and even people on this show who've spoken of burnout. Mm. It seems to be surprisingly common here in Luxembourg. Why is that? It's a very good question. Um, It's not only individuals and individual cases I come across. uh, The numbers, there have been some recent numbers showing that um, Luxembourg has one of the highest stress factors in the world. Uh, Over 50% of people, that means every second person, actually scores on a scale when being asked how stressed do you feel in your job every day on a scale from 1 to 5, from 1 being not at all to 5 maximum. Over 50% of people scored maximum of 5. I, I find this so extraordinary in my mind, you know, having, you know, come from London and seeing how things go there. But the, the research and the science on this to find out what it actually is, is in the making. There's, in my experience, um, there's usually not one factor driving this. It's usually a multidisciplinary part in, in, in this. Um, what I find is there's, uh, what I found out so far is that there is a cultural aspect in terms of how people are being managed. Um, a big part of, uh, of people doesn't want to be controlled in a very tight way. And most people, most managements I've come across here have a very controlling style. And this has certainly is certainly an aspect of it. There is often a lack of transparency and communication with people. 
a very hierarchical management or leadership style, um, and so on. I'm sure there are mm -hmm. other factors um, which will also differ company by company, but in general, one can say you need to have a better understanding of your employees, and that means you need to go and talk to them in surveys or, or just put, putting a pat on the back um, and having an informal conversation with them to have a better understanding. But that's what's missing. Yeah, not being an expert in this field myself, the hierarchical model seems rather old-fashioned nowadays. But uh, leaving that aside, I think COVID has slightly changed things and perhaps the nature of work uh, because of COVID, it seems to have become more acceptable to have flexible working, to work from home, etc. I mean, have you seen any of this transfer back into the working life post-COVID? Yes, absolutely. I think the biggest impact actually of COVID, and that's people often talk about, ah, now employees can work from home, there's more flexibility and so on. I think the biggest change happened actually in the mind of the formal leaders in management because they were forced to change. Mm -hmm. And that is that, that was a very important aspect because before people were always sitting back, leaders were sitting back saying, ah, you know, numbers still look good, um, everything is fine, uh, we're doing well, we are in Luxembourg, everything is good, why should we change something? And with COVID, they were forced to change and that brought this element of change in their thinking and I think that's the biggest change that we have seen. Not that people now have home office. Um, I actually think in the in terms of the home office when you have a very rigid model on the one hand and then something changes you often switch the pendulum swings to the other side and i think it has swung a lot to the home office side and i think we're now seeing that it's swinging a little bit back and i think it needs to be in a balance mm -hmm. um, so it, there is no one size fits all approach there's no like ah oh, now we can save millions of costs because you know, they can all work from home because we can already tell it has very negative implications for culture and, and commitment and loyalty and so on. Um, so there needs to be somewhere a, a middle ground. And that also, again, depends on the people. So you need to go and talk to the people, their job descriptions and so on, what makes sense and what doesn't. Yeah, I heard on a, actually it was a, a different podcast, but some research that showed for younger people, it's better for them to have time in the office because they learn from the more experienced staff around them. Uh, but for the more experienced, possibly managers, they need the time alone in order to get work done sometimes. One other factor I should mention that has a very big impact on home office or not, or telework or not, is the quality of relationship. What research has shown is that um, working from home uh, works for maintaining existing positive, good quality relationships. It's virtually impossible, be it the younger generation or the older generation, to build a relationship online. Mm -hmm. uh, it's virtually impossible. Um, so you, you really have to ask yourself when you are, like, let's say you're a manager in a multinational company um, and you have to manage satellite offices, before you do that online or through Zoom or Teams or whatever, you need to go there and spend time with the people to build that relationship. And then you come back and then you can run it like that. And it's the same for home office. When on, when you're onboarding people, big, a lot of companies here have a, a, a big issue because they're onboarding lots of people in a short period of time. And when that happened during COVID, they suddenly have 20, 25, sometimes even 30% of their workforce who had never been culturally adjusted to that organization. And that is a big problem. Or met one another even. Yeah, there's so many more points I have that I could discuss with you and I, I may come back to them. But just uh, um, 
I think one of the of the work that you've done and the papers that you've written, something that comes up a few times is the need for basic psychological needs to be met in a work environment as well as just personal life. So can you tell us what they are? The needs haven't changed because our DNA hasn't changed in 50,000 years. Maslow's, Maslow is a very intuitive yeah. Um, yeah. a very intuitive structure, motivational model, but it has no scientific foundation. A lot of people use That's it, right. but there are no measurement tools. And there's a, there, there may be an intuitive structure to it or logic to it, but it's hard to implement it in an in a organizational So context. what do people use? So what people uh, need are basically three basic psychological needs, or I call them mental vitamins. Um, they need autonomy, they need belonging, and they need competence. And I call that the ABC of life. Um, You've written and, books on this, in fact. Yes, that's true. <laughs> we can link to that. Um, and uh, that, that's what people need. And the, the problem that I see at the moment, just linking it to, to that topic uh, of the ABC, is that we talk, when we talk about people washing, we also talk a lot about work-life balance. And anyone using the term is supporting the paradigm that work and life are two separate parts. And that means we would be spending 25 to 33% of our adult life at a place that is not worth living because it's work. Yeah, longer in some people's cases. That needs to change. I mean, yeah. we need to create work environments that create a life at work. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a work life and a private life. And up until that happens, you will have increasing mismatch between what people need and what workplaces deliver or provide And the bigger that gap, the more burnout and the more anxieties and the more depression and the more absenteeism and you name it, we're going to have. Well, thank you, Marcus. We'll come back to you later in the conversation, but I'm turning to your colleague now, Vivi, um, who is the placement coordinator and clinical educator at Lunex since 2020. You worked as a gym trainer and a physiotherapist in your homeland of Italy. Uh, spent 14 years as a physiotherapist manager in humanitarian missions in war-torn and developing countries. So it's really that which I'd like to start with because uh, I've seen your presentation and the, the work that you've done in these very, very difficult situations. I mean, we've just been talking about the corporate environment, but I mean, the places you've worked, completely different. Yeah. Give us give us a feel of that. Uh, it started uh, in 2005. Uh, um, I started to feel the need to experience something uh, uh, that connect me a bit more with uh, with people in need and uh, and uh, I wanted I, I could use my profession as a physiotherapist to do this and I applied to a position in Afghanistan and by chance my my job was not uh, my post uh, in Italy was not renewed and three weeks after I was in Afghanistan with no any background and no any br real briefing or preparation for this uh, post and it was of course it was shocking um, it, it was uh, it, it was difficult to uh, at the beginning the culture um, the living condition was the thing that mostly was difficult for me and continued to be the most difficult part for me in all the mission the confinement you are in a house we were 20 people in Kabul closed inside you cannot go out you cannot do your groceries you cannot uh, go for sport you can only 
cross the street together with the guard to go in the in the hospital and come back with the same people you wake up with the same people you go to bed and you fight sometimes so this make the the job uh, more difficult it's like uh, for people like me that uh, is independent and need his own space it's like uh, it's, it's like a bomb that is, <laughs> is building up yeah. this is why in some countries normally you can stay after three months you need to take a, a break and come back but there and in, in these places was six months so it was was very difficult and um, and i remember the the first time i saw a mass casualty there and a truck arrived full of bodies one above the other and rushed into the emergency room i was I froze you know and the head of the physiotherapist took me by hand and said oh vivi it's normal for us don't worry i was crying because i didn't know what to do but then you learn you learn that uh, especially when you are in emergency you have you need to respect rules and your role so there are things that you can do things that you cannot do and things that you are advised to do so as a physiotherapist for example you have not to be in the emergency room because you are not you have nothing to do in the emergency room you need to be ready to to work with the people that are in the ward after the operation so when the radio because you cannot use a phone you use radio when the radio are calling every now day and night day and night you need to try to uh, you cannot switch it off but not to listen too much someone arrived with that stab wound bullet injury you cannot do anything they told me you go to go to bed in the night even if the radio is calling you need to be fresh in the morning to work with the patient while the nurses are shifting and doing the night because as a physiotherapist of course we don't work in the night so this is difficult because at the beginning you want to know everything what is happening what is happening and your brain is just consuming energy you need to confine your energy only to those uh, are your role and mm. your task this was the first difficult things to for me to deal with and the turnover of people because in the house uh, people finish the mission people people is starting every day there is people that leave people that it comes you don't know uh, you want to know your team you don't have the time to know your team because this expat continues to change as someone new is arriving from all over the world so at the beginning my attention was i wanted to know and uh, who are you where you come from what is your background and then you understand it you need to let go a bit you know and uh, you say hi and then maybe after one week uh, sitting on a table you go deep into understand who is this person but you need really to keep your energy for your work this is so fascinating because what you're talking about is an extreme form of what marcus was talking about in a way how you're managing your stress in the most stressful situations and i'm thinking about uh, marcus's abc you know having autonomy feeling like you belong and are competent and so you know at least two of those three aspects are are are, are shaking a little bit yeah. and you have to find your own ground in your own territory there um and i i know you've spoken before about this feeling of being trapped in that house with people that you don't really know mm-hmm. and you are free spirit and you're very very energetic and lively and sporty so that must have been very difficult then how do you cope when you return 
Uh, at the beginning, I was taking unpaid leave. So it means that uh, I finished the mission, I could take a, only maybe one day off and going back to work. Uh, this was for me too difficult. Uh, going back to the day-to-day -day life uh, with people with low back pain, uh, with shoulder pain, that I understand that uh, having a shoulder pain for your uh, everyday, it's, it's, uh, it's annoying and make your life difficult. But for me, it was difficult to shift from uh, heavy injury to our normal problems, even if our, uh, they, we deserve uh, attention. And uh, the topic, the talk of the colleague, uh, ah, I bought a dress, uh, pink, uh, I need to buy. And this was this, uh, the supermarket, the supermarket full of food. Uh, and it was another thing that at the beginning was, was heavy for me to see all this, uh, uh, no, the abundance that yeah. we have here. And uh, so I decided uh, after some years to, to quit and to, to do only mission. And when I was coming from the mission, I needed like one month to stay close. I was trying to hide from everybody, to go to the gym when nobody that I know was there. I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to share because... I understood with experience that people cannot understand. So it's a waste of energy for me to uh, go in details and explain what I was living because first they are not interested. They ask, but they cannot really uh, understand. So it's better to be superficial. You say, okay, it was nice, whatever. But uh, at the beginning, I was writing email to a group of friends uh, with all the description. They don't, sometimes they don't even answer because they are busy with their life. People, you know, people in, in our countries busy with their life. They cannot and be empowered. Well, I would say sometimes people wouldn't know how to reply. Probably. I, I think it's, it's one of those awful situations where they don't know what to say because it's so awful. I mean, we've all seen the news this week, what's happening in Gaza and Israel, etc. And I, I can imagine you're thinking of it from the mission work that you've done and you're thinking about the catastrophes there and the My friends there and I can't reach them so it's it's heavy I try to reach them but of course uh, they cannot answer so it, it's heavy it's heavy because I've been working with these people in Gaza and uh, and they are so strong. Uh, uh, even when we were with the Syrian uh, war, you know, people amputee, and they they don't really want to. They just were telling me, "Fix me as you can. I want to go back in the field and and fight. I'm a sniper. I don't need to move. I can sit in a, in a place and and shoot. I, I don't I don't care if I will not walk uh, anymore. It, it's difficult for us to understand this. You say you have been injured. Uh, now stop it. Now I want to." go back it's my country I want to so these uh, children that never cry Afghan people never cry never complain uh, they are so strong they are so used to see uh, injured uh, they are so used to have relatives that been shot dead or amputees so for them is 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 normal uh, for us is everything is so extreme they live with the disability. I'm, I do a class with uh, in uh, Lunex about ICF, International Classification of Function, and we talk about disability. I try to explain them uh, that in the WHO now we there is this classification to try to 
classify the disability not only based on the injury or the the, the body function or body uh, structure impaired, but together with all the rest of the contest, because uh, an amputee here in Europe is not the same level of disability. If you are an amputee in Iraq where there are no streets, uh, where there is uh, no facilities, where you don't have a good prosthesis, where you don't have a good uh, wheelchair. So <coughs> the, the disability in this country is much more higher than us, mm. than what we have here. And even if you did have a wheelchair, the roads may not be set yes, up to exactly. be able to use it, exactly. etc. Uh, I mean, one cannot really understand what you've seen or what you've been through and as you're explaining these uh, these memories that you have of the work that you've done with your colleagues and, and the people in the field it comes to my mind that their mindset is quite different as well so you're dealing with somebody's not just physical ailments and trying to get them back to whatever movement is possible after their often very very severe injuries but you're also dealing with their mental strength of mind yes um when I started, uh, the mental health uh, uh, issue was not taken too much into consideration. Now, every project uh, in any medical field is always accompanied by a mental health project because wherever there is uh, uh, any kind of catastrophe, natural or, or caused by war, there is always uh, a big problem with mental health. I, I worked uh, in Jordan for one year uh, with the CVTS Center for Victims of Tortures. So that is another completely different field because uh, for me it was difficult to understand um, when a person is injured in the war is uh, like an accident. Uh, when a person is injured by torture is intentional. So people are tortured not to be killed but to to be to have a sufferance that will bring will be to, with them all their life mentally and physically they are tortured then they are healed to be tortured again so uh, this was so uh, difficult to understand and even to to start to to work with these people so the program is mainly a mental health program but then they started to uh, attach a, a little uh, a part of physiotherapy to try to combine uh, the physical rehabilitation with the mental health. Uh, some people torture, they don't even want to be touched, so we have to paint the, the wall in, in light color because the white color was triggering them because it was being tortured in uh, like medical setting. We couldn't wear a, a hospital uniform because we were triggering them, so we were using a T-shirt, blue, uh, so these things w were explained to us by the, the counselor, by the, the, the psychologist, because uh, you know we are physiotherapists. We don't have this background. We are not trained to train uh, to to be physio of torture survivors. Well, so the point is that it all links. They Everything links, links. and yeah. uh, and not only does it link uh, in the help that you're providing for them, but I imagine that when you and your colleagues return and you need that quiet space often, I imagine many of you also have mental health issues. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps, I'm only thinking out loud here, you might feel guilty if you have a mental health issue because you've seen people really suffering the most horrific things. And you might think, well, I, I shouldn't be feeling like this. Uh, being honest, I never had this feeling because when you suffer... 
you just suffer and you you co- are concentrating on your on your you go back on your sufferings now so of course uh, you do a briefing with the psychologist before you leave you do a debriefing i had my psychologist who was following me and sometimes i needed the support of a psychologist of uh, of the of the ngo um but everybody has a different way to overcome the stress um i i went more times in burnout and uh, and i tried to you know i feel it physically um more than mentally i the 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 the, the stress attacked my body physically i feel tired i feel uh, some people drink or some people smoke more i feel exhausted no uh, without any reason and just uh, uh, and then and then i need to start little by little little by little to try to understand what i feel what i need uh, if i stopped to do sport and i went to tai chi for a period because uh, it was something that i could do slowly without going in the gym aggressive gym or the noise so uh, i think everybody has his own way there are some people that are more strong Uh, that finished the mission and go on holiday for me it was not possible mm-hmm. when i finished the mission i was uh, i did always long mission i tried to to get long mission because i wanted to have the connection with the team if you do three months you don't understand where you are you don't understand your team you do a short intervention i like long uh, long mission to create this team i have people with who I'm in touch from all the mission where I've been and this is this is nice yeah but one thing I need to say with the memories the pain disappear you know with all after so many years when I think I it, it remain in my mind only the the nice pictures not the sufferance the the positive remain in my brain this mm-hmm. is nice the, the pain, i i didn't have children but they say that a mother after the deliver she forget the pain that she had when she delivered mm, i don't know that's i true. never i never experienced <laughs> this yeah but yeah, I, i think can, the mums in the room are nodding yeah that's true <laughs> but uh, i experienced this uh, although sometimes i was really suffering what i remain in my mind is only the the nice moments so this is uh, and now you bring this experience to your students at lunex yes. and you help with the placement so yes. talk to us about that yes this is uh, i i'm coordinated all the placement we have more more than like a 120 institution with who we collaborated but i wanted to give some student the opportunity to um, to do a, 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 a one of the clinical placement in a developing countries. So now, little by little, I am sending them uh, in Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Senegal, Rwanda. We will start in March, uh, South Africa. And uh, of course, it's a minority of people that wants to do this experience. But I want them to have the opportunity to to try uh, and to see if in, are interested in this. Of course, the level of uh, education is not the same, but they learn so many other things that uh, that doesn't diminish the value of the experience that are uh, having. And so far, the feedback has been uh, very good from the students. So I'm very happy. I can imagine it's utterly life changing. Well, Vivi, thank you so much for sharing your experience experiences with us and we'll be back right after this very short break. The Lisa Burke Show. 
Now I would like to introduce my next three guests who are from the Luxembourg Media and Digital Design Centre. Thibault Latour is the CEO of the LMDDC. I've been practicing that. Spent more than 20 years at the LIST, the Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology, as head of research unit specialised in knowledge modelling, ambient intelligence and educational technologies and founded the Cognitive Environment Lab and then served as head of European Affairs. Thibault, in partnership with the University of Luxembourg, led the design, implementation and deployment of TAU, which is the leading open source computer-based competency assessment platform used worldwide in the OECD's PISA and PIAC surveys, amongst others. And in 2013, to accelerate the development in TAU's market penetration, co-founded Open Assessment Technologies as Chief Technology Officer. And you love to speak about the bridge between art and science. Also introducing Georgie, who I will shorten to Gira, who is a, a, a neighbour of mine almost, multimedia design manager at the LMDDC. Uh, and uh, Gira has worked in the computer games industry for more than 20 years, involved in the creation of games such as Hitman, Blood Money. Uh, her career started as a graphic designer and moved towards producing. And more recently, Gira turned to the link between education and the games industry. She founded in 2019 EduGame tech to promote game-based learning. And Michalis Spiropoulos is the project and partnership manager. Michalis has worked for several directorate generals of the European Commission and upon completing his PhD in political science, Michalis came to Luxembourg as a postdoc at the Centre Virtuel de la Connaissance sur l'Europe, which has now become the Luxembourg Centre for Contemporary and Digital History, also known as the C... They They do their acronym so well here in Luxembourg, the C2DH of the University of Luxembourg. So welcome to you all. It's uh, it's really nice to have you here. And I mean, the Thank first you. question, you've all got amazing CVs, very, very, very long and different CVs. But I want to start with you as CEO, Thibault. Tell us what the M- LMDDC is. Yeah, yeah, it took me three months to, to be able to, to <laughs> pronounce so it. With you it. That's okay, it's okay, great, you, you passed the exam. <laughs> it's the Luxembourg Media and Digital Design Centre. It's uh, it's an EIG, so it's kind of a new um, agency, it's public. It has been founded by two ministries, Ministry of Education uh, and Youth, and the Ministry of uh, Higher Education and Research, and in collaboration with the Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology. So these are the three members, and the mission is really to promote innovation and support organizations, training organizations to do, uh, to, to jump into digitalizing their training. So, uh, and, and, and in a sense, we also translate kind of the innovation that is made in university, in, in the list or in other institutions into a reality for, for people, for training organizations. So we have, we have basically four mission, assistance, technology assistance, strategic assistance, just to design strategies on digitalization hosting platforms and providing digital tools for people, for organizations. Um, and also very big, big work is also to help them produce digital media of every kind. So it starts from the website up to uh, virtual games and virtual reality. And, and that's where Gira is also uh, extremely <laughs> instrumental in that. She's managing all that stuff. And, and the fourth mission is really to do uh, uh, intelligence, technology intelligence, um, economic intelligence, and of course, knowledge dissemination. So we organize workshops and these kind of things. You said lots of big words there. <laughs> There's lots there, lots of missions. Who are your, who are your customers? 
So we are we are basically a B two B organization. We're not facing the the student. Uh, mm. We're not yet another training center. We help the training organization. So we are really between. Uh, we are a small team. We're going to stay a small team, and we bridge together the people from the technology. You have a lot of companies here able to do games, virtual reality, doing great things, but they may be a little bit limited in terms of knowledge, in terms of pedagogy. And on the other side, you have also great researchers or great consultants on pedagogy and instructional design, but they have low, low clue on, on the technology. And we bridge these two people with our partners, our training organization. So we work, we work with these companies and we do the whole journey from the, from the design to the production and of course we work uh, with video producers game producers and these kind of things and you have Kira on board who is herself a game producer I mean Kira I must say I hate to say it but you are female and I imagine there are not or were not so many females when you started out back in the day Yes, it's true that uh, time, I think that uh, usually there was 100, 120 guys around and me <laughs> as a girl. And that, that, was, that was, you know, it wasn't a bad working environment. So uh, it was, that was the natural for me. It's changed lately. Mm-hmm. There are more and more female in the gaming industry, luckily, because we are bringing that, uh, that uh, female touch here. And uh, also, there are more and more uh, female in the educational gaming. This is a very, very important thing because we are the one who are listening at home, our children crying about, but why it have to be so boring? Why it must be so, so struggling? And actually, this is something what, uh, what uh, brought me to the educational gaming field. Uh, one thing what a teacher of my daughter said, that... Learning should be hard work. It's not supposed to be fun. And that, that was the thing that was actually motivated me, motivated me to, 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 to want we're, to change We're all this. laughing here. We're all laughing here in the studio <laughs> because the thing is, uh, we can all imagine certain types of teachers saying that in certain types of... Uh, I, I'm thinking about what you said right at the top, Marcus, the, uh, the hierarchical system. You must learn. It must be very hard and you must suffer. <laughs> Which oh, yes. seems like a very old-fashioned way of teaching again, but yeah, you came to this uh, edutech, uh, plat- and you've you've developed it yourself, in fact, as well. Yes, that's true. And uh, actually, joining to to LMDDC, this is something what uh, just reflecting back to to stress stressful working environment. When I just sending uh, little videos about uh, the banana piano and people are goofing around in the in the, the um, motion capture dress and creating amazing uh, AI tools. Everybody's, you are just having fun there. You are not even working there, guys. And I'm, no, 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 we are working hard and having fun. And this is what we want to bring and deliver to all the schools and all the companies and all the institutions because learning not supposed to be suffering. <laughs> no, no, I think we would all agree with that. And it again reflects back on what uh, Marcus said at the top, which is that, you know, it's about work as well, not just the learning for the for the young people, but now we have a situation where we must be lifelong learners. So as adults in companies, we have to continue to learn, we have to continue to adapt. And in fact, I'm sure, Michaelis, you've seen this with the European Union because they have now got various directorates. Digitalization is a big theme for the European Union, the European Commission as well. And uh, each country is at a different level, but you've seen this up close. 
Yes, that, that is true. Thank you for mentioning that uh, past experience, which takes me back to uh, yeah the early 2010s. And back then, the, the digital strategy was being launched. Um, in fact, there was um, a Luxembourgish commissioner uh, that was involved um, indirectly in this in this um, discussion. Um, and we've come a long way. It's been more than uh, 15 years. And back then, the digital was something new, and it was the beginning of this uh, fashion that is now uh, overwhelming and everywhere. And I have seen this this shifting, and um, I I can say for sure that bridge, bridging technology now and and uh, education is. Um, is very is unavoidable. You mentioned we mentioned the pandemic since uh, the beginning of this this podcast uh, once or twice, and the pandemic accelerated this this trend for sure. So yes, it, it's a great great team, and it's a it's a very topical um, topical um, topic, and and mm -hmm. yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so the, the the fact that the LMDDC was was created is and is now in full swing is uh, is, a, is a, it's it's a good momentum for us because we noticed that uh, organization need us uh, or need, they have some needs that need to be fulfilled. Most of the times we're here to, to, to help them out. And if not, as Thibault mentioned, we are kind of br br bringing uh, people um, together. And um, yes, yeah. no, it's, it's a very exciting journey. Yeah, and uh, Thibault, just moving back to you again, I mean, you have this, this long experience when it comes to um, all of these platforms that you've developed over the years. I mean, they're incredible. I mean, I particularly like the sound of the Cognitive Environment Lab. What is the Cognitive Environment Lab? Oh, yeah. So it was, it was my, last, my, my last period at least. Um, so the idea is that we, uh, we need to interact in a multi-user way, in a multimodal way, so natural way by speech, gesture, touch, vision, of course. And the idea is also that we are connected between the cyber world and the physical world. So how do we interact with physical spaces? How do we interact with this room, for example, maybe snapping the finger and get the light on, something like that. So a cognitive environment is a physical place that you can interact with, that can understand what you do, your intention, and can also give you feedbacks and feed forwards for the task you are needing to do it. So if you're a worker, in a, in, a, in a plant facing a machine, an industrial machine, the machine becomes the cognitive environment. The machine should understand what you do, gives you feedbacks and feed forwards on how to use it, and you interact with the machine, for example. This is an example. If you do collaborative decision-making, you may have a room where you have all the information flowing in, simulations, and multi -use, multiple users with multiple agendas, multiple objectives, multiple uh, angle of view on the problem, may share their uh, understanding, act on the simulation and get the feedback from the room. So this is a cognitive environment in general. So these are all examples of this. It's fascinating. I actually was at a, it might sound a bit dull, but it actually wasn't. It was the internal audit conference yesterday. And uh, we had amazing talks and we saw information about the metaverse and how people in the future might wear glasses. And uh, you say, I, say, I say in the future, but these things happen very quickly. And I'm sure you guys see the rate at which this happens and the rate at which one really needs to adapt to a new model of not just learning, but working as well. And I'm sure, Marcus, you're across this as well. And so alongside developing this and 
and interacting with the businesses, you know, the B2B, as you say, how do you bring the employee or the student on board mentally to cope with all of this? Oh, yeah, this is a very, very important point. I mean, we uh, having, we call that change management, but also simply stakeholder enrollment into the process. So you don't start to design a learning experience without the learners. So you need to think about the learners, you need to get the learners on board, you get some learners at least on board. You get also to have the traders on board, everybody needs to be on board. And, and just as, a, as I mentioned, we had an experience where in an organization, we were talking with responsible of the project and we were designing something quite new for for them and at the end of the process they were just realizing that the new thing was not completely accepted by the trainers because the trainers were actually never being brought in the project of course we discovered that at the end of the process so this is something we should really do and and that's and that's why we are really really careful about doing all this journey from the learning objectives and rolling all the stakeholders and making sure that everybody endorses the, um, the new digital media, the new digital learning instrument uh, at every step of the process, making sure that it's usable by the people, good learning experience, pedagogically sound, and also, of course, technically valid. I mean, it needs to be distributed the way it is supposed to be. So this mm -hmm. is extremely important to have every, everyone on board from the start. One of the other points that came up with a great speaker, a French journalist called Guillaume Piton yesterday um, at this conference on Internal Audit, um, was, uh, he, he's done two years of research in the field, visiting all sorts of different places about the energy it costs for everything to be digital. And it's enormous, uh, absolutely shockingly enormous and, you know, certain percentages of carbon dioxide, etc. used to uh, store our data. And I'm sure a lot of you who have worked in this industry, you're aware of this. So, I mean, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not what you work in, but it's a side topic. And perhaps you saw it, Michaelis, with the European Union Commissioner. I mean, perhaps this is an open question to all of you as we move into a more digital world, but yet we need to be environmentally conscious. How do you marry those two aspects? Well, uh, it's, a, it's a very complex question. So um, on our side in LMDDC, we always think about, we, we think about sovereignty. We think about also making use a lot of open source software. This is our DNA. Uh, and about sovereignty, we want also to be in control of, of all the things. So we own the server, so we know exactly what we consume. We're not going to use ChatGPT uh, where we don't know exactly what is the, the carbon footprint on that. So that's one thing. But it's, it doesn't solve the whole equation, of course. So mm. this, we need to be more. And that's something that, we, that we're going to do, kind of evaluating all these things. And there is another important point. Digitalization of uh, training is not just doing e-learning, is not just using heavily and completely and only digital tools. It's mixing, as I said, with the cognitive environment, mixing the physical reality and the cyber reality and, 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 and the cyber world. So digitalizing a classroom with a, a little voting system on your smartphone is already digital learning. Mm. Uh, it's not only e-learning. So this equation, digitalization of learning equals e-learning is absolutely not true. So this is also a place where we look carefully about not creating overkills, but just 
analyzing where digital makes sense and not just do digital for the sake of digital. So I'm this smiling is, this is how we do that. because you're reminding me that right after this show, I have to dash to one of my daughters, uh, well, uh, her school, um, to, to sign a form to release her iPad. <laughs> <laughs> I just it just brought that into my mind. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, we will we'll come back to you if we have time. But I want to turn to Hannah because we have so many, so many guests in the studio today. It's it's really quite a quite a bus load of student um, students. I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking of students there, students e-learning and all the rest. I want to introduce Hannah, Hannah Shumashko. I hope I've said that correctly. Yes. a linguist and radio journalist, and of course we know you, Hannah, here at. Uh, Today Radio because you are the Silux podcast host and you're a science communicator as well. So, I mean, you are a linguist by training, but you have this wonderful passion for science. Where does that come from? Oh, yes, I was expecting that question. Yeah, Everyone of course. asks it. I, I mean, just yes. Keep changing the answer. So the official answer right now is that they just love science. Boring I mean, answer. I mean, the reason the question <laughs> is there is because it's not what you studied, but you've fallen true. into it as a career. True, true. I mean, there was just always that kind of an idea that I wanted to bridge the gap between the scientist and the general public and it just it's just thrilling I love that moment when I get scientists in the studio and then in the beginning they're a little bit like yeah yeah maybe she kind of prepared but she doesn't know what I do and then after 10-15 minutes I can see a bit of a kind of oh she does know what I do <laughs> and then sometimes I even get the recorders like what did you study do you have background in my field of work or whatever so this is really the moment I'm looking for yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you have a deep interest and of course you've brought to us the Silex podcast. So for anybody who doesn't know about this, where can they find you? What's it about? Yes, the Silex is all about uh, technology and science. In Luxembourg, I talk to scientists based here or that have a link with uh, Luxembourg. Uh, we are normally powered by Research Luxembourg. So that's a consortium of the main research institutes here. But I also produce some Silex originals where I just talk to the general research environment representatives here in Luxembourg. And of course, where can you find me? Well, you can Google and find, but I can also say all the podcasting platforms. And yeah, we're present there. We're always interested in comments and uh, feedback and you will see what we do. And you're about to start season four. Yes, that's going to happen on Tuesday. We're bringing you a new season. There'll be international guests. So we will also try to talk about the projects where there is an international cooperation. And on top of that, uh, the first episode is very, very dear to my heart because I managed to talk about mentorship in academia. Yeah, well, that's that's something that I think a lot of people here, again, we have nodding heads and uh, yeah, a lot of people here have worked in um, academia. Ah, and uh, I'm just looking over here now talking about uh, things that are coming out. I know that you would like to announce uh, Yeri. I'm going to turn to you an AI workshop because perhaps there's a link here and Hannah might be talking to you about it. So Yeri, tell us about this. So I would like to invite all of you (laughs) (laughs) and all the listeners uh, for our workshop next week. Uh, It will be be a brilliant uh, set of tools that uh, developed ourselves uh, using uh, open source uh, uh, tools, using AI in education. So the main point is... um, to play with different kind of AI tools, to see that how can be useful in everyday education. Um, I think that about the details, I just giving the microphone to Michalis. <laughs> yeah, well, just quickly rebound on what Thibault mentioned earlier. Um, the goal of this workshop is to have people try 
tools that we developed in-house and perhaps reflect on how they could be implemented in their own organization and fulfill those needs I mentioned earlier. So yeah, well, a- AI is something that we hear about over and over again, in fact, and I know that you've interviewed people on AI, as have I. So it's it's a topic that is, you know, we will end up living with it, of course. Yes, definitely. I did d- discuss, obviously, ChatGPT. Yeah. And that was the uh, least researchers. So I have a link, basically, to everyone here. I also interviewed researchers from C2DH and from Lunex. Yeah. So Me too. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's quite a lot to, to discover. Yeah. But, of course, it's not only AI. And I want to also emphasize this, that I love the fact that we're talking a lot about STEM right now. It's important discussion, but science is more than this. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And in fact, a lot of people here as well, and I know it's something dear to your heart, Thibault, when I was reading about your work, and of course, well, Kira as well, you know, the fact that uh, a lot of people think science is not creative or artistic, but that's not true at all. You need an incredibly artistic mind to be able to develop uh, new thoughts, new ideas. I'm sure you've discussed this, Hannah. Absolutely. There's one episode I would uh, kind of tell you to listen to once you're done with listening to Lisa Burke's show, of course. <laughs> Thank uh, you. And that episode is exactly with a scientist from the University of Luxembourg, uh, Bruno Teu, and we talk about maths. Uh, the title is... Uh, Maths, the word that you should not mention, because exactly he develops games, he gives them to people and he doesn't say it's maths. So it's important because otherwise they will kind of run away, some of them at least. And it's exactly that thing that when we talk about it, we talked a lot about creativity. We didn't mm-hmm. talk about the maths from school that we all think of, which is, I don't know, equations, which are super exciting for me personally, but I do understand that this is probably not everyone's cup of tea. Well, I love maths, but unfortunately, whatever way maths is being taught to my children, they don't like maths and it breaks my heart when they say that to me. I mean, it really, really breaks my heart. And they say, Mom, well, you know, we can't like everything. And just because you like it doesn't mean that we like it. And, uh, <laughs> and it really breaks my heart, actually, when I hear them say that. Maybe because you're just alluding to what you said before, is that often maths is just taught as this hard work thing, right? That you're supposed to work hard and not actually find solutions and think. Yeah, for me, it was always, well, I knew there was a point you need to click. And then when you click, it's like a game. So that that's that's where I, I enjoyed maths. But not only that, you're also going to be working on Museum Night, which is one of the most special nights in Luxembourg. Yes, exactly. So that's coming today in the afternoon, because I guess you'll be listening already on Saturday. So the 14th of October from uh, 5pm until 1am, all the museums from the Museum Smile. So all the seven museums are participating. And there are a lot of uh, live performances, uh, culinary treats, um, different visits. But what I'm focusing on, of course, is my guided visit, because this year, the Museum's Night has podcasters to guide you through the museum. Each museum has a podcaster that will be telling you a little bit about an exhibit. And I'll be at the Museum of natural history what I'll be telling you about the moon because you might be aware that in uh, the Museum of Natural History there are Luxembourgish flags at certain moments somewhere there and they are the ones that actually flew to the moon and back so they were brought back uh, to us from the Apollo missions so I'll be talking about that I'll be talking about the moon itself and I'll tell you a little bit about Luxembourg and of course space sector that is so important here in It's such an important industry we've had plenty of people you and I as well from the space industry yes. and as you talk about the moon I can see Marcus flying a little plane in the corner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, but it's wonderful. So I, I know personally, Museum Night in Luxembourg is one of the most special. Of course, we should say it's free, free entry everywhere. Oh, I'm not so sure about that. I can't confirm to you because I'm not a representative of, of the organizing team, but I think it depends also what you want to participate in. Okay, okay. Sorry if so I please I've, check that. I yeah, sorry I, I, if I've given out misinformation there. I certainly don't want to. Uh, 
actually, just as a side note, um, completely a side note, but something that's close to my heart, I, I'll be working with um, Brain Innovation Days in, in Brussels in a couple of weeks' time. And one of the pieces of research they've done is um, some doctors can now give a prescription to visit a museum to people suffering mental health issues um, because sometimes, for all sorts of reasons, they don't feel <laughs> able. Marcus, if you need to zip out to get some water, please feel free. You're suffering there and uh, obviously not very well. Um, but yeah, the um, doctors can give a, a museum prescription to people for their mental health um, because some people feel they they can't visit a museum. I mean, it might feel obvious to us, but it isn't an obvious thing to do for some people. And they can get solitude there. Not on museum night, it's a very busy night. But uh, there's also, I, I just think it's a wonderful thing. And of course, I come from a place where museums are free, entry is free. Um, so that's not the case in Luxembourg. And perhaps we should petition for it to be the case because it helps people's well-being in so many ways. Yeah, definitely. And I also uh, cooperate quite a lot with the Museum of Natural History. And this is a very special museum, pretty new. So you would be surprised to see that it's, you know, it's uh, on the innovative side sometimes. And what is definitely important for children is, as it, as they call it, is the museum with the slide. Yes, that's so true. You can also slide there. And I have to say, I'm very sorry, but I'll be just talking next to the slide. So the slide during my talk will be actually closed. So you have to come before or after to slide, but do come and listen what I have to say about the, about the moon. And yeah, maybe we prepare some prescriptions from you, Lisa. Oh, well, I, I would be a total advocate of that because I think it's such a great idea actually to have free museum access. But I don't want to put a tax burden on the the new government uh, just yet, but I think I might uh, pose that question if I ever get the chance to um, interview Luke Frieden again or uh, Xavier. But we don't know. Let me just uh, yeah leave a big question mark there just for now. I won't say any more on that. Uh, but yes, of course, we all want to uh, see Hannah in action at the Science Museum. We'll all be linking in to uh, hear your new podcast season. Um, anything else you'd like to leave our dear listeners with? Of course. Uh, well, first of all, I need to mention what time they can listen to me because I'm yes. not going to be talking all the time, unfortunately. <laughs> so there'll be two possibilities. One is at 6 p.m., the other one at 10 p.m. So, of course, the 6 p.m. is more kind of from families, the other one for the adults that are just uh, going around. And also for the museum night, important thing, there'll be free uh, shuttle buses going around. So also, you know, if you think about the natural uh, Museum of Natural History, that's in the Grund. So I know people are like, oh, we get there and then how we go to another museum. There's also a possibility of free transport to go around and what which else? is very important right now because so many car parks are closed in the city centre yes, absolutely <laughs> yeah. but I what I can also add is that you know just uh, do check out what is going in the scientific um, environment in Luxembourg because I still happen to meet people who are like but there's nothing going on. I don't need to preach to all of you here because you know that. But some of the people have actually no clue, haven't visited Belval and don't know how fast it all de is developing. It's moving fast. And so is the AI world. And we will link to your wonderful workshop as well. Do you want to leave our listeners with a final note on that? I just uh, realized we did not specify the the day of the workshop, so thank I will, you. <laughs> I will add notes, but yeah, you've got 30 seconds to add it's it in. Next Thursday at uh, in the Skip uh, building in Belval, which was used for um, ESH 2022. The Skip building, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. S-K-I-P. Yes, it, it, it's that's oh, the that, shape of yeah. a yellow <laughs> wave and it starts at five o'clock. Wonderful. Well, we'll link to all of that. To all of my wonderful guests today, thank you so much. Thank you for the great work you're doing. 
And uh, we look forward, dear listeners, to hearing your your feedback on this show, as we always do. So thank you once more to all the listeners in Luxembourg and internationally. It's a great pleasure to be with you, as always. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio.